hello and welcome to another conference special episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. This time, Josh and I are virtually travelling to the sunny equatorial climes of the island of Singapore, and we are virtually attending and bringing to you the latest and greatest from the World Lung Conference 2023. First off, some housekeeping Apologies for our listeners for the state of my voice. I actually have COVID for the second time at time of recording. So if I sound a little bit nasally, a little bit like, um, oh, Josh, who was the Looney Tunes pig? Josh is Googling as we speak. You are Mr. Porky Pig. If I sound like Porky Pig, that's it. If I sound like Mr. Porky Pig, that's our folks, then uh, it's purely because of the virus. Anyway, that out of the way. (laughs) That out of the way, how are you doing, Josh? A lot better since you gave me that. Michael, you're always really good with the impressions and Porky Pig was no exception. I'm sorry you've been unwell, but as is your dedication to the cause, thank you for coming even though you're under the weather. Yes, well, I had to be wheeled in on my gurney um, attached to my life support <laughs> machine, but no, I'm thankfully not that that ailed by it. It's the second time around, and I think my body's learned a few tricks from the first time. Anyway, Josh, we're going to probably do a couple of episodes on the World Lung Conference stuff, uh, although we always say that and always tends to blow out to about five episodes. But today we wanted to focus on a couple of studies from the plenary sessions, specifically the MARS-2 study, which is a surgical study. We don't get too many of them on oncology for the inquisitive mind. A surgical study on mesothelioma and the FLORA-2 study examining the combination of osimertinib with chemotherapy. Josh, why don't we go beyond the moon, near to the asteroid belt, that separates the inner regions of the solar system from the outer regions. I'm really struggling with this metaphor here. You and are, speak you are. About, <laughs> and speak about Mars, Mars 2, which is, um, which is an interesting study, specifically talking about surgery in the mesothelioma space, which I'll be honest, Josh, I didn't think was really a thing, certainly not a thing that I've encountered. Have you encountered uh, surgeons wanting to maximally cytoreduce mesothelioma or this concept of resectable mesothelioma? I I have seen historical, I guess, decortications or pleurectomies in some of our really old patients, but most of the mesothelioma guys I've encountered are in their 80s and going anywhere with even a bread and butter knife, I'd be worried about with these guys. Coming at them with a bread and butter knife, not giving them a bread and butter knife and asking them to move 10 feet. Honestly, both like, I think either is quite dangerous. Yeah. Look, you're probably not wrong. I, I On that, we can agree. I'll be honest, I have never seen anyone undergo an operation for mesothelioma. And it is interesting because the the presenter uh, of, this, of this study was a um, doctor, although he's from the UK, so it'd be Mr. Eric Lim, who's a, who's a thoracic surgeon. And he gave some interesting backstory on this, that it's actually been a um a clinical option that's been offered to patients for about 70 years which blew my mind really and it is something that is recommended in multiple the the surgical guidelines of multiple countries multiple uh, surgical societies 
as a potential option and they're still clinging to this concept of resectable mesothelioma. So the study was something that I, at least in my experience, is fairly rare, Josh. It's a surgical randomized control trial. Obviously not blinded. It would be very hard to blind one of these things. But it is comparing pleurectomy decortication with a bit of a chemotherapy sandwich, as it were, with chemotherapy alone. For those of our listeners who are who don't know, I didn't know before actually reading up on this, pleurectomy decortication is defined as the removing of all visible disease in the visceral and parietal pleura, and if required, the ipsilateral hemidiaphragm and the pericardium, but if possible, sparing the actual lung itself, which sounds, sounds like an incredibly invasive procedure. A really, really invasive procedure. I, I would just, I just can't see people recovering well after this kind of surgery. You'd imagine they'd have to be pretty young to even attempt this sort of thing. And surprise, surprise, this sort of thing has never been evaluated in a randomized controlled trial. The background to this is that previously surgeons were doing uh, pleurectomies where they basically took everything inside a patient's single lung, because obviously if it was deemed resectable, it would only be affecting a single lung, and scooped it out, warts and all. And they found that that actually didn't help the patient, surprise, surprise. And so now they're looking at sparing as much material within the thorax as possible while still removing the cancer. But of course, it's very hard to evaluate this in a uh, clinical trial setting. So the aim for Mars 2 was to compare the clinical and, I guess, the health economic benefit potential of extended pleurectomy decortication plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. The primary endpoint was overall survival, with the secondary endpoints being progression-free survival, safety, and health-related quality of life, as well as cost-effectiveness. Inclusion criteria, there are a couple of discussion points here. Um, but patients have to have tissue-confirmed mesothelioma. That's pretty black and white, I guess. They had to have disease in one hemithorax, but this was assessed by CT scan alone. They had to be deemed surgically resectable. They had to have an ECOG performance status of zero to one, and they had to have no end organ failure. All of which, I guess, Josh, are things that, as you alluded to before, are not factors that are common in the patients with mesothelioma that I've seen. As you've said, yeah. most of them tend to be a bit older. Most of, I think the average age is 75. So so that's an average. Can only yeah. go up from there. And they tend to be, because mesothelioma is such a infamously insidious disease, they tend to be diagnosed quite late, quite advanced. And by the time they are diagnosed, you know, it's far too late for that sort of thing. In terms of the patient demographics, I guess coming back to this, the they managed to scrape together 335 patients and they were randomised one-to-one. Now, the two arms for this study are quite interesting. So all patients received two cycles of platinum and pemetrexed, which, as many of our very long-term listeners will know from our third ever episode, I believe, is a standard of care option, certainly the most, uh, the certainly the oldest standard of care option for patients with non-sarcomatoid mesothelioma. So platinum and pemetrexed, and then they were followed by a CT to evaluate resectability. 
They were then randomized to either surgery followed by four cycles of platinum plus pemetrexed or the four cycles of platinum plus pemetrexed alone. So the difference here is surgery plus chemo or just chemo by itself. And it's really putting on trial, as it were, this whole concept of are any mesothelioma resectable, which I think is very interesting. In terms of the demographics, the median age was 69. 86% or 87% of patients were male, not unexpectedly. 54.9% of patients had an ECOG performance status of 1. And 86% had epithelioid mesothelioma. So the whole platinum plus pemetrexed versus IO question has to be raised here, but the impact of survival is probably lessened considering that the vast majority had epithelioid mesothelioma, where we know that chemotherapy and immunotherapy are probably roughly equivalent, and only 3.3% had sarcomatoid mesothelioma, where immunotherapy really, really comes into its own. When breaking down the TNM staging, there were significant differences within the T2 cohort. I must confess I'm not 100% across how mesothelioma is staged from a TNM perspective, but within T2, there are two sort of subtypes. There's involvement of the diaphragmatic muscle and extension of the tumor into the underlying pulmonary parenchyma. And if you're looking at a surgical, uh, a potential surgical approach, then obviously these are going to be major considerations as to whether patients were resectable or not. And so 25% of the surgical cohort had involvement of the diaphragmatic muscle compared to 58% of patients who didn't receive surgery. And 83% of patients in the surgical arm had extension of tumor into the underlying pulmonary parenchyma compared to 50% in the control arm. So there is a significant difference there. Now, the results. The results are interesting, but I guess not really surprising, considering everything that Josh and I have said. The long and short of it is that surgery doesn't appear to work in this study. We'll start off with compliance. So 39% of patients who received surgery compared to 56% of patients who did not receive surgery received the full six cycles of allocated chemotherapy. So even before getting into progression-free survival, overall survival, even when we're talking about the bare minimum of delivering systemic therapy for a disease that is, let's face it, almost certainly going to be incurable, then that is significantly affected by surgery. After completion, 22% of patients compared to 38.5% received immunotherapy or other treatment known to improve overall survival. So this was after radiological progression on the trial regimen of chemotherapy plus minor surgery. So you're not just affecting the delivery of chemotherapy in and around the the surgery itself, but you're also potentially removing the possibility for patients to be fit enough for immunotherapy afterwards. So it's not just the current treatment that is potentially being affected, it's all future treatments thereafter. Uh, The overall survival curves actually crossed over, but they crossed over after 42 months. Now, Josh, with some of your decortication patients that you've seen, they might make it to the 42-month mark, but If you're making it to 42 months, which is almost four years, then you're doing really well regardless in terms of what we know about the the prognosis of mesothelioma patients. 
You really are. I think from memory, I'm trying to remember this old chap I traded. Really nice guy, but I think he actually had a lobectomy from like 15 years prior. Could be completely wrong in that that discussion point, but I remember examining his back and being like, oh, this is really strange. But mm. times times have definitely changed. And since that one chap, honestly haven't seen anyone. All I see is that everyone's very frail mm. and even poking poking the bear or giving chemotherapy is always a bit of a discussion point. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> you're always going to have these people who do exceptionally well, but they are the exception that proves the rule as opposed to the standard. So in terms of the overall survival from zero to 42 months, which is where the majority of the patients will sit, there were only 15 patients, as a matter of fact, who made it beyond 42 months out of 335 in total. So between zero and 42 months, the hazard ratio of um, surgery versus chemotherapy alone was 1.28. We don't have many hazard ratios on this show of more than one, Josh, but what that equates to is a 28% increased risk of mortality. So not good, the opposite of what we aim for. After 42 months, there was no significant difference between the curves. But again, we're only dealing with 15 patients here. Probably not enough to justify subjecting everybody to to surgery up front. Survival did not change when adjusted for differences in amount of chemotherapy received and the number of patients who received subsequent therapies. So this overall survival difference is thought to be, as far as we can tell, almost entirely due to the presence or absence of surgery. There was also no difference in progression-free survival. There was a three-fold increase in the risk of serious adverse events in patients who had surgery, and these were primarily cardiothoracic disorders, infections, or the need for uh, repeat interventions for things like pleural effusions or draining infectious infected collections, that sort of thing. And they also looked at quality of life, which going into this study, I was actually quite interested to see. And the surgeon, Mr. Lim, was very emphatic. He said, and, and I quote, in every single statistically significant measure, surgery does worse. And that is pretty black and white. And the, the little cherry uh, on top of this rather terrible cake is that surgery is also bad for the economy at large from a health economic perspective, caring for patients with surgery had a higher cost um, by 14,500 pounds. This was a UK study. So to summarise, really, this study suggests that throwing surgery into the mix of treatment of mesothelioma is worse for the patients from a survival, uh, risk of complications and quality of life perspective and is also worse from an economic perspective by quite a significant margin. The surgeon who presented the case actually suggested that this concept of resectable mesothelioma is one that likely needs to be allowed to die, which fits with our clinical practices, as Josh and I said before. And and in the UK, and I, I think in Australia as well, their systemic therapy options like immunotherapy are restricted for those with inoperable mesothelioma, which Josh and I always thought was a bit of a joke because, again, we've never seen patients with operable mesothelioma. But if you are calling someone resectable, 
then those sorts of treatments where these restrictions exist are going to be closed off. And so if this whole concept of resectable mesothelioma is banished, then all of these other treatment options that are known to be effective from an overall survival quality of life perspective suddenly open up to patients. There are a couple of questions with this study that were raised in the subsequent uh, panel discussion. The first was with regards to the assessment of disease. Now, according to the surgeons, and this was news to me as well, but CT scans are notoriously unreliable for assessing loco-regional infiltration of cancer. In this case, specifically looking at the diaphragm or the chest wall. The NCCN guidelines suggest assessment by CT, PET scan, and invasive staging with an e-bus, which, again, I haven't really seen done in practice because in the places I've worked, when we see mesothelioma, most MDMs, we just throw our arms up and say, well, let's give them systemic therapy. Whether a patient was deemed surgically resectable or not was done by the surgeon at each individual centre, which obviously opens up the possibility of bias. If you've got a surgeon who is more experienced, more confident, then they are more likely to have a go, give a patient a chance, than a surgeon at a uh, at a lower volume centre. The study design in, that included uh, these two cycles of induction chemotherapy, there's no real data that I'm aware of regarding induction chemotherapy versus upfront resectability, but, you know, the, the concept of resectable mesothelioma as a whole is a little bit murky. And there's some questions regarding the standardization of surgical technique that honestly I couldn't, uh, I, I don't know enough about to really, really comment on. So there are a number of questions with this study, Josh, but I suspect that it is really confirming an, an underlying bias that I will fully admit to having, which is that for patients with mesothelioma, unless it's very, very localized, surgery really doesn't have too much of a place in in the treatment. You might even perchance say surgery has no no place in the treatment with an overall survival being approximately 9 to 17 months. I was looking this up in the mesothelioma, plural mesothelioma space. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, it's not just the survival from a cancer perspective, it's the it's the quality of life. And if you're subjecting someone to something that is a incredibly invasive, incredibly morbid procedure, they were talking about some patients even having part of their diaphragm resected. I don't even know how that's physiologically possible. But you are talking about a highly invasive, highly morbid procedure for patients who are probably already fairly morbid with their disease and other comorbidities it really starts to stack up that you just need to get these patients on systemic therapy. Yeah, and also huge saving for the patients, financial toxicity, time toxicity, health system burden, because ultimately these guys are going to have a significant burden on their healthcare system for the rest of their lives. Exactly. Michael, we might move on. Let us, let us do that. Let us, let us move into a future that is somewhat more exciting. Not more exciting, but uh, first of all, kudos to that surgeon. What, what a brave, brave research publication, given that's your bread and butter or might be your bread and butter. Yes, it, it was um, quite eye-opening and I completely agree. We've often talked about treatment de-escalation on this podcast with regards to systemic therapy. If the same can be done for surgeons and there's you know increasing 
movement for that, particularly in the rectal space, then it will be better for patients all around. Yeah, and maybe that's something we can take from this when we do our trial designs and actually do our comparison to the best standard of care rather than an archaic drug from 20 years previously. Yes, yes, completely agree. Speaking of archaic drugs, Josh, let's talk about a study that doesn't have an archaic drug. <laughs> Michael, you just want kind me to of. move on. Let's talk yes, about Flora 2. <laughs> let's talk about Flora 2. So Flora 2 is a phase 3 study. You might think it sounds similar to Flora and Adora and all those other auras and your Dora right. the Explorer. Dora the Explorer. The background is there are clinical factors for poor prognosis for an EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer population. These include, it's not really a surprise, Mikey, but I, I, we should say it. So CNS or intracranial metastases and having an L858R mutation. There was a phase two study called, I think it was the OPAL study, and it was in the Japanese demographic, and they demonstrated encouraging efficacy and activity when comparing osimertinib being added to both a platinum and a pemetrexid, which is you know, the old school standard of care with most non-small cell lung cancers. The study design was that essentially people had to have locally advanced or metastatic. They had to be over the age of 18 or over the age of 20 in Japan, unsure exactly why maybe they define being a kid as 20 pathologically confirmed non-squamous yes michael no no i just just a, I, yeah just your comments on japanese culture there, there. well I, I don't know I, i'm merely asking the question why if you were 19 you wouldn't be included in this trial um well, in the states they should make that uh, 21 then because that's when when you're allowed to drink right yeah, well, as, I don't know. I don't know if it's a correlation. The, <laughs> as we all know, the marker of a true adult is how drunk they can get. That's it. And stand up. You have to have the the exon nineteen deletion or the L eight five eight mutation. Um, a good performance status of zero one. No prior treatment. Stable intracranial metastases and brain scans at baseline. They were stratified according to race, including Chinese, Asian non-Chinese, Asian, and then non-Asian, and then an EGFR mutant from either local central testing and a good performance status, either zero or one. They were randomized to osimertinib plus pemetrexid and carboplatin or cisplatin versus just osimertinib 80 milligrams alone. After, with the intervention arm, after you had the four cycles of chemotherapy, you then moved on to maintenance, osimertinib and pemetrexid, and you continue to go along your merry way being treated. They're randomized one-to-one. -one. There were 557 people included, and then they were follow-up following resist 1.1, and they were assessed at both the 6- and 12-week mark, and then every 12 weeks after that, progression was defined as radiological disease progression or withdrawal criteria being met. The primary endpoint being that of progression-free survival, with a secondary endpoint being progression-free survival based on the blinded independent clinical review. And secondary endpoints are everything you come to love and expect on this show, including overall survival, objective response rate, duration of response, quality of life stuff, safety, and progression-free survival too. So many acronyms. So when many I, acronyms. When we write the notes, it's just a list of three-letter acronyms that 
anyone who's not medical or not into the trial space must, must look at and just think, what the hell are you guys talking about? Oh, 100%, mate. It's just uh, it's a joke. <laughs> so m- moving on, demographics. Majority patients were female, as expected, based on you know, EGFR mutations, mostly young Asian females. At least 25% of that cohort fit that criteria. Median age being 60. 60 is young in our world, an ECOG of one, most had never smoked and most had adenocarcinoma with an EGFR mutation breakdown being 60 pin, 60% had the exon 19 deletion and 38% had the L858R mutation. CNS or intracranial metastases were found in 42 and 40% respectively with the different arms. Now, as I like to say, and Michael likes to copy me and say here's the juicy part <laughs> if we should just re- we should just rename this podcast honestly the juicy oncology podcast the, ju- the juicy oncology for the juicy inquisitive juicy mind so many juices so little time <laughs> all right moving, moving too to juice the- too furious <laughs> and we have officially been cancelled moving on to results the progression free survival showed a hazard ratio of 0.62 with a p-value of 0.62 0.001, showing a median progression-free survival of 25.5 months versus 16.7 months, with a two-year progression-free survival being 57% versus 41%. Obviously, the 41% is the osimertinib alone without the chemotherapy, and so the better number has the combination of the two chemotherapies or the one chemotherapy versus single agent just a flag. Results were similar regardless of where they were tested or where they were reviewed, and the benefits were consistent across all predefined subsets. Moving on, progression-free survival in patients with intracranial metastases, really important cohort of patients given how some drugs don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Osimertinib is better than gefitinib or allotinib, but, you know, can always do better. What they found was the PFS was 24.9 months versus 13.8 months. And this is where it really shone. Hazard ratio of 0.47 compared to without metastases, it was 27.6 versus 21 months with a hazard ratio of 0.75. So for patients who really need a benefit the most, there is evidence that osimertinib um, with chemotherapy actually maybe improves penetration on the blood-brain barrier? Maybe, or maybe the chemotherapy itself gets intracranially better and thus it helps for the control. I, I don't really know the, yeah. the biology behind it, but it's something to kind of think about when you've got someone who's got a high burden of disease. Moving on, they then divided it based on the mutation. So exon 19 deletion, 37.9 months versus 19.4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.6, and the L858R mutation of 24.7 versus 13.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.63. Interestingly, the L858R does fairly does worse, although the hazard ratio is actually somewhat similar. Do you know why, Michael? I know that L858R is a, um, as you said right at the start, a prognostic factor for poor outcomes. I think they tend to be a bit more resistant to EGFR TKIs than the exon 19 deletions sort of like a a step between the really good of exon 19 and the really 
difficult of the Exxon 20. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. As oh, My summary or my point being that I think it's got a, it confers a poorer prognosis having that specific mutation type. Hmm, yeah, but the hazard ratios for Flora 2 are, again, similar. Yeah, and when we look at the progression-free survival too, so the time from going from for essentially your second treatment requirement, so you've progressed through this arm of treatment and it's what's coming next, in the this was 30.6 months versus the 27.8 months in the standard of care arm with a hazard ratio of 0.7. And overall survival, neither was reached yet, but the hazard ratio was 0.9. We need more time. These are pretty good drugs. So I wouldn't expect us to find an overall survival outcome just yet, given how great the objective response rates are, which I will now jump to. And they found an objective response rate of 83% versus 76%, which is phenomenal considering what chemotherapy used to be alone. Absolutely. It really is um, a a quantum leap, but it is nice to see the finessing of an already good treatment with osimertinib. Josh, one of the things that I was wondering when I was looking at this study uh, was the incidence of adverse events, obviously adding chemotherapy to osimertinib which is usually a fairly well-treated uh, drug, any benefit is going to come at the cost of increasing toxicity. But specifically, there is the specific toxicities of uh, interstitial lung disease that have precluded the, com- the combining of osimertinib with immunotherapy, as an example. Was there any information given on that, on that in the Flora 2 study? I'm so glad you asked. There was things, things. To oh, talk imagine about. the surprise. Imagine it. Whoa. <laughs> what we know, and it's to be expected that there were higher rates of adverse events with combination therapy. It's just going to happen. If you ever had a multiple choice exam, hopefully none of us ever have to do one of those again. You're going to say more toxicity to say what you think. And it's probably going to be right in some extent. And what they found was that mostly hematological and nausea-based toxicities were particularly high. ILD, or interstitial lung disease, was reported in 3% of the combination arm, so that's nine patients. That's platinum, pemetrexid, and osimertinib, versus 10 patients, or 4% in the osimertinib monotherapy grade. Would I say it's significantly higher? Not. I think that's that could all be per chance that you would see a slightly higher ILD in the chemo-targeted therapy arm. There's, of course, the anemia, which is platinum pemetrexate is far higher, and the diarrhea as well, and the nausea is a lot higher, and the neutropenia is a lot higher, and the thrombocytopenia is a lot higher, and the decreased appetite is higher, and the constipation is higher. I'm going to stop, Michael, but this is really saying that chemotherapy has its standard toxicities, which are still present with or without osimertinib. I think what they, uh, the catch-all phrase is toxicities were expected with chemotherapy. As expected toxicities or, you know, yeah. toler- as expected tolerability, maybe that. No new phrasing. safety signals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the duration of response was 24 versus 15 months in the combination arm and compliance, or I prefer the term adherence here, was the duration of osimertinib exposure was 22.3 versus 19.3 months showing that it's a pretty well-tolerated drug, and 76% of patients completed the four cycles of the platinum and pemetrexid. 
what what's the conclusion and what's the take home message? I think in the scheme of what's becoming a pretty crowded field when it comes to lung cancer, there's lots of nuances now. But this is a cohort of patients who, if you give chemo to targeted therapy, do you do better? The early results are very promising. There's benefit in the progression-free survival of the combination arm versus osimertinib alone. And the PFS2 and OS data, whilst immature, is trending towards benefit. The safety profiles, as Michael already said, were as expected and manageable. Remember, it's only four cycles of the combination chemo and then a single pemetrexid. And why, while there is always that cumulative toxicity you see with pemetrexid or any other chemotherapy, I think the benefits here, if you can tweak it properly, is probably worthwhile. So pending outcomes. So things that we still really want to know, Mikey, include what's the CNS response and progression? Promising, but still not there. The patient reported outcome is going to be a huge thing in this cohort of patients. It's already a good treatment. Will it make their quality of life terrible that you'd probably pass? I don't know. What's about the post-progression endpoints? Where do they move? They've already had chemo. They've already had osimertinib. Do they move to the Empower, so the immunotherapy? I don't know, but that's more chemo on top of other immunotherapy. And of course, the CTD analysis, can we tweak our treatments in the future and treatment breaks, reinstitute treatment? You know, will some people respond better to others pending other analyses that we just don't know about? So many exciting but unanswered questions, Michael. Very exciting. And it is it is one of those studies that is promising and we eagerly await the later or more complete data with PFS2 and overall survival. It's not something that we're going to be able to use in Australia at the moment or anytime soon because the PBS restrictions are for osimertinib are still that it has to be the only PBS-funded treatment. So you can't give it in combination with chemotherapy unless you're doing some uh, slightly shady stuff, which we on this show definitely do not recommend or endorse. But the... It will be interesting to see if those restrictions are loosened in response to more positive data or if this will be one of those studies that starts out very promising with good progression-free survival. But when it comes to uh, put its money where its mouth is and actually demonstrate an overall survival benefit, it falls a bit flat. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. And if the drug company is listening, we would love an access program to this. So you'd fund the osimertinib and we can give the chemotherapy. Uh, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. And we can say we single-handedly helped lots and lots of patients. But I don't think that's the case. I Michael, don't think we have that much power, Josh. <laughs> we don't. We don't. But we Josh, might. Josh is uh, suffering his first illusion of grandeur. Since we <laughs> not my first podcast. maybe well, my podcast last. <laughs> podcast related yeah yeah <laughs> delusion of grandeur um so that's those are the uh the two studies that caught our eyes from the plenary session of the world lung conference of 2023 brought to you via melbourne and sydney from singapore so uh next week we will be looking at a quick fire session of several other oral presentations and mini oral presentations that caught our eye including the destiny her two study follow-up from the CRYSTAL-1 study of anti-KRAS TKI treatment and several others that escape my mind right now. So join us next week and we'll bring the hits very quickly in our next episode because there'll be a lot to get through. See you then, Mikey. 
Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Thank you.